I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, if you're new to the Bible, this would be about the last fourth of the Bible, or the, the New Testament begins with four accounts of the life of Christ, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John. And so we're in Luke, the 10th chapter. Again, if you're new to the Bible, the large numbers are called the chapters, and the smaller numbers are called the verses. I'll be preaching from chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. As we get started here initially, I'll just be reading verses 1 through 16, and then in about the middle of the sermon or so, we'll read verses 17 through 24 at that point. But to this point, over the last several chapters, Jesus has been explaining and demonstrating what it looks like to follow Him, explaining the cost of following Him, and laying out the fact that that often there are difficulties involved in being a disciple, a, a follower of Jesus, that perhaps you wouldn't expect, and p- perhaps our culture would tell otherwise, that, that living the Christian life is uh, living on a flowery bed of ease, and that's simply not the case. And so uh, this passage and ones like it that we're looking at today uh, remind us of that reality that it is often very difficult to follow Jesus. Much of his instruction in previous passages has been just to his uh, 12 disciples, who then became the 12 apostles. And in our passage today, he's expanding the mission quite significantly, going from 12 out to about 72 uh, followers who will, will then go uh, seek to make disciples elsewhere. So please follow along as I read verses uh, 1 through 16, and then, like I said, later on we'll read 17 through 24, but here he's going to give a large group of followers a specific and time-sensitive mission. So follow along as I read aloud, please. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. About five years ago, I had the joy, I suppose you would call it, of coaching my son Thomas's uh, t-ball team at our small town in Alabama. I hadn't 
signed up per se to be a coach, but the director of the parks department there reached out to me because we had signed up Thomas to play, and he said, hey, I would really love for you to coach. I'll let you be the Cubs. I was like, okay. On that, <laughs> on that basis, I'll decide to be the coach. Of course, then this was March, April of 2017, which means the Cubs had just won the World Series which means every Little League team in America wanted to be the Cubs, which means they didn't have uniforms for the Cubs, so we ended up as the Blue Jays. So if you ever see my kids wearing Blue Jays gear, that's why. But uh, one of the great challenges of coaching t-ball, and probably just about any Little League team until you get to about 12 or so, is that the players are not that interested in being out on the field. And so typically about half of my team was behind second base making sandcastles together and literally using trucks behind second base to the point that whenever the other team, which even though it was t-ball, it seemed their kids were like three times taller than my kids on my team, um, whenever they would hit a line drive toward this, this mass of bodies behind second base digging in the dirt together, we wouldn't even say heads up because we figured it was probably better for them not to look at the ball when it was coming toward their heads. And we just let the ball somehow skirt through their group and out into center field. But those kids were obviously there for purposes other than playing baseball. They, they enjoyed the fact that every inning we had them, the whole lineup go through, you know, all 12 kids or whatever go through the lineup just so they would get experience. They enjoyed the chance to hit the ball. But beyond that, they were not there for anything besides just to have fun with other kids their age. And however that happened was, was fine with them, whether it was with, with us as coaches or not. Um, I was out there to have fun by winning games, or at least by playing baseball, you know, at least by playing baseball. Who cares if we won or not uh, at that level? But that's what they were supposed to be out there for, but it's not what they were out there for. They wanted to have fun on their own terms, and essentially... Uh, whatever brought them joy, they were going to do that at that point. And so uh, in ways very similar to, say, fifth and six, or five and six-year-old boys and girls on that team, we as Christians are often very distracted from the mission that God has given us. It's as if God had said, go out there and play baseball, and we're out there digging in the dirt instead. But we are engaged in a far more significant mission than playing baseball or digging in the dirt, But the reality is still that we are easily distracted from the mission of the church, from the mission that Christ has given us as his followers. And so we can easily give ourselves to matters that are good but not essential. And there are a lot of things like that. I remember in a a class I had a few years ago, uh, the question someone raised was basically, do churches need to have a soup kitchen? Like, is that an essential part of biblical ministry? We would say, no, it's not. Is it bad to have one? No. Is it good to have one? Sure. Is it essential to have one? No. But you have lots of churches that elevate things like a soup kitchen and say, this is what the church is designed to do. This is what we're here to do. It can be part of what we do, but it's not why we're here. I hope that that distinction that uh, can make sense to you. Of course, we can also give ourselves to emphases that are not good at all. <laughs> so it's better to have things that are good than not good. We want to give ourselves to what is essential more than just what is good. That's, that's the point we're trying to make there. And what this passage, verses 10 through 24, lays out for us is that disciples are sent to engage in Christ's mission. Not just let us go have fun playing on the dirt. Let's go 
be engaged in Christ's mission. And so we as his followers then are called to serve him enthusiastically, joyfully, fragrantly. So when Paul says that, that our ministry to some people is, is actually a fragrance of death, to other people it is a fragrance of life. And so we, we are to live our lives in such a way that unbelievers actually are in some ways turned off by the way we joyfully serve the Lord, but those who are being drawn to the Lord are almost magnetized by the way we live our lives and by the truth that we speak and the friendly way in which we engage them. And those who are Christians eat up what we are giving them because we are the fragrance of life to them, because we're telling them the truth. In this passage, perhaps as I read aloud, you scratch your head at various times and said, so what in the world does that mean? Or how is that supposed to help me? Or what am I supposed to do with that? And there are several pieces of this passage that are, maybe the word we could use is not normative. In other words, if you go and and expect that everything that Jesus told this group of 70 or 72, and I'll come back to that in a second, disciples, uh, is what we're supposed to do or say or you know, go into someone's house and say, peace be to you, as soon as you, they open the door for the first time, like, they're probably going to say, not to you, and then close the door. It's, like, it's probably not your most effective evangelistic technique to say those words as soon as somebody opens the door. You probably shouldn't kick the dust off of your feet when you walk through a town where someone says, no thanks to the gospel. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what we need to realize is that in every passage that we, we read, there are going to be parts of the passage that are normative and not normative, that are uh, very easy to apply, and then perhaps the application is a little further down the ladder, we could say. So we want to be a little more general in some parts of this passage, and we can be more specific in other parts. But just be aware of that, that there were specific people Jesus was talking to at a specific time in human history, at a specific time in the progress of the gospel and of the progress of redemptive history that Jesus was speaking in at this moment. And so uh, I will point out several differences. I'll also point out several ways in which uh, we can expect this passage should be directly applied to our lives. If there's something that I don't directly cover, because this is a longer passage than we often cover together, just Ask me afterwards at the door, and I'll be happy to to talk through any of those details. But we can observe at least general principles for us from what Jesus is teaching these disciples. And though we're living a few thousand years after Christ gave these specific instructions, and we're living in a very different time of redemptive history, uh, what Jesus said to these pairs of disciples is still true for us as well, at least in in very general ways in some cases. But again, the, the gist of verses 1 through 24 is that disciples are sent to engage in Christ's mission. It's not our mission. We are, spent, we are sent to engage in it, not just watch it, not just observe it from a distance. We as disciples are called to engage in Christ's mission, and so we should serve Christ enthusiastically. The reason we should serve Him enthusiastically is because in verses 1 through 16, this mission is urgent. This mission is urgent. Many of the specific instructions that Jesus gave these disciples uh, related to the fact that they didn't have time to waste. Maybe you caught that as we, as we walked through this passage. So, for instance, uh, in verse 4, he says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. That would be an extra pair of clothes, in other words. And greet no one on the road. Well, that sounds very unfriendly. Like, don't take any food, don't take any money, don't take any extra clothes, and don't say hi to anybody. Well, maybe you can think of it this way. Um, 
My family, uh, my mother's maiden name is Pashby. They come from western Michigan. I'm not sure where before that, but I think somewhere, you know, Dutch Reformed type background. And uh, the Pashbys are known universally almost for their goodbyes. And what this means is when our family is together for a holiday, it takes a very long time to get out the door because everyone is giving a very lengthy goodbye. And so perhaps you have relatives like that as well. Maybe you have the Angerhofer goodbye or the, you know, Gibson goodbye. Or I don't know what else. But, but the point is, um, Jesus was saying, don't get bogged down in conversations because you don't have time to waste. All right? So get to the place you're supposed to go, which was specifically the place where Jesus was about to go next. Maybe he was giving marching orders to each individual uh, pair of, of disciples here. But don't, on your way, get bogged down in in needless conversations. Don't just start greeting everybody you see, or you're never going to get to the place you need to get to, and they're never going to hear the truth they need to hear before Jesus arrives. So there is some some urgency about this. Excuse me. Now, just to address um, a very minor detail, there's this point in my Bible it says Jesus appointed 72 others and sent them. It's very possible that you have a Bible that says 70 others, and it's not even necessary for us to take a raise of hands or anything like that. The point is, and basically we're dealing with a couple of different letters in Greek that were translated from one person to the next or or copied from one person to the next. The point is, there were lots of towns where Jesus was planning on going. So either there's 35 pairs or there's 36 pairs of people not a big difference. And I just want to acknowledge that for you. But if I'm up here reading 72 and you're scratching your head going, how come mine says 70? Again, if you want me to go into the details of how textual transmission takes place, after the service would be the right time for that. But again, a lot of these details are here to tell us there's not time to waste time. So don't just dilly-dally on the way to telling people who Jesus is and what he's coming to do. And so in verses 1 through 4 specifically, disciples go under Jesus's direction. He's the one who sets the agenda, who tells you where to go and who's going there and when you're going and what you're supposed to do once you're there. And that's all under the sovereignty of God. Uh, That's all part of his prerogative to tell us the marching orders. We don't get to make up our own game plan on the way. And you might have noticed in verses uh, 3 through 5, if you've read through you know, all of chapter 9 recently to get caught up in where we are in the book, you would say, wow, this sounds very strikingly similar to what Jesus said to the 12 disciples back at the beginning of chapter 9. Don't take extra money, don't take extra clothes, don't take extra food, all because, for one, it's a way of reminding you the Lord's the one who's going to provide for you. And two, the mission is so vitally urgent that you don't have time to waste getting ready to go. So he's the one who sends people and he gives the task, as with the emphasis in Sunday school today, Josh did a great job with, the Lord is the one who saves people, the Lord is the one who sends people, and we are still involved in this mission. We get to go and we get to pray, and that's what the Lord tells these disciples here. Go and as you're going, be praying that more people will go. Be praying that more people will get involved in being laborers for the harvest. And I love this phrase that Jesus prays too. Uh, that, that he uses to express who God is, who the Father is. He's the Lord of the harvest, which tells us so many truths about the Lord, but for one, that he loves to bring sinners home, that he loves to, to rescue sinners from, from judgment. But as part of the Lord sending people out under his direction, we're reminded that 
he sends us into spiritual danger. Where do we see that in this passage? Maybe look at your Bible and see if there's anything that jumps out at you. I see that specifically in verse 3. Go your way. I am sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. That means there's danger. That means this is not a time to have fun and games in Christ's mission. Perhaps you've read Pilgrim's Progress and you have uh, uh, Pilgrim, Christian, walking through a very narrow way where the wolves or the lions uh, are nipping at his heels, so to speak. But what he notices when he gets close enough to them is that they are chained. They actually don't have the freedom to get to him because they're being restrained by the Lord himself, by chains that the Lord himself instituted. And so in a very similar way, yes, you're going into danger, But keep in mind, you are immortal until God is done with His work for you. Perhaps that day is today. Perhaps that day is 80 years down the road. Whenever that is, you are immortal until God is done with you. So you can have great confidence that even though He is sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves, which means you're helpless, which means you're defenseless, the Lord is the one who has already gone before you and lighted your path, and given a clear path, and given you divine safety for exactly what He's called you to do. So perhaps you go as a missionary, or perhaps we send missionaries into a very dangerous mission field, and that person dies. Should we not have sent that missionary? Maybe because they they get a disease that they would not have gotten here, or maybe because they're actually murdered, as with people like Nate Saint, and Jim Elliott, and I believe five, five men who went into a very dangerous mission field and were killed on arrival. Think of all the time praying for them to go to that field and all the money raised to get them there and they arrive and they're killed like that. So should they not have gone? No. Actually, they definitely should have gone and the gospel has flourished in that tribe because they went. So what we realize is that those brothers were immortal until the Lord was done with them. And so we trust in His safety that He provides for us, but do realize that He does send us into spiritual danger. So what does the Lord do? What, is, what provision does He give for us as sheep going through a difficult journey? What does He give us? He gives us pastors. Pastors are shepherds. That's what the word pastor means. So you have people who are sheep, and I am a sheep myself, which is why I need to be pastored, which is why, from a practical standpoint, a plurality of elders is so helpful. I need brothers who are watching out for my soul because Satan loves to shoot fiery arrows at every single one of our hearts. So you need a pastor, and I need a pastor. And the Lord has provided these these, uh, pastors to watch over his sheep as they go through the dangers of the Christian life. And maybe you're asking, what does a wolf look like today? If you're not asking that question, you should be asking that question. (laughs) What does a wolf look like today? Because it's very different probably than the kinds of wolves Jesus specifically had in mind when He sent these 70 or 72 uh, disciples out. Well, maybe the wolves that you encounter the most are people who add to the gospel. The kind of people who add to the gospel message. So trust in Jesus alone, but also do this. And again, maybe at the door I can give you lots of examples. I have some written down, but if I get into them, it's going to be five minutes down the road. 
I've still got two more wolves to describe here. So let's go to the second wolf. People who subtract from the gospel message. You have people who add to the gospel, that's a wolf. You have people who subtract from the gospel, that's another kind of wolf. And so maybe as a quick example, the, the kind of subtraction from the gospel message that someone would give you is, you don't need to live a holy life. Jesus is the one who lived a holy life, and so you just put your trust in him and go on your merry way and live however you want. Does living a holy life save you? No. Does a lack of any evidence of holiness raise serious question about whether your trust is in Christ alone? Yes. Again, there's a door back there. I'm going to stand next to it if you have questions about it. But what I'm saying is repentance, we have repentant faith in Christ. Repentance reveals itself through holy living, through striving to, f- to fight against our simple, sinful impulses. So you have the wolves who add to the gospel message, wolves who subtract from the gospel message, and a third kind of wolf is someone who hates the gospel message. And that's a very different category than those previous two. Uh, But this is likely the one that Jesus most clearly had in mind when he said this. People who are going to hate you because of what you say. These these people want to shut you down because of your message. These people may, in various cultures in the world today, thankfully, mercifully, not very often in our culture, but in other cultures, they're going to imprison you. They're going to give threats to your wife or your children or your husband or your children or your parents and your siblings. They're going to threaten your family. They're going to stone you. They're going to say you're not welcome here. We're an inclusive society except for you. And these are the kinds of wolves that that many Christians face today. So be aware of those wolves, but be aware that the Lord is the one who sends people out. And we go under His direction. So the disciples go at the Lord's direction. And in verses 5 through 16, the disciples go to elicit a response. Specifically, the message that the disciples give either causes people to respond in faith and repentance, and that's specifically verses 5 through 9. People who receive God's messengers receive God himself. And those who reject God's messengers reject God himself in verses 10 through 16. And so you're going to elicit a response, and perhaps the first response you get, especially today, is going to be a negative response. Like, we are telling people to view the world through a completely different framework than they've been taught to receive. And the way they're getting that framework taught to them is by every show they watch and every book they buy at Barnes & Noble or check out of the library and every podcast you listen to and every advertisement you get in your mailbox. They're all telling you to view the world through a particular framework and the Bible's framework is totally different from that framework. Again, the framework that the Bible gives us is what we affirmed when we said that I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Stop right there and you've broken the framework that the world is telling you. If you go on to, and he will judge the living and the dead, he's going to come again to judge the living and the dead. That breaks the world's framework completely. So what I'm saying is that we as disciples go to elicit a response, and when people receive the message joyfully, praise God. And when they reject us, Let's continue to faithfully, lovingly have voices in their lives as much as possible to tell them the truth until they receive the message well. But if they outright reject us, we can say, there are yet other people who can come behind and water this seed. It is not my job to save someone. The Lord is the one who can accomplish this work. And we can move on 
feeling like we have done exactly what the Lord has called us to do, lovingly try to persuade people of the gospel. But you notice, and just to be very clear, I know what I'm doing here is kind of broad brush strokes, but jump down to verse 14, and what you notice is that Jesus always operated with the final judgment in view. Verse 14 says, it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So these two cities that were desperately destroyed in Old Testament judgment uh, prophetic narratives, they were terribly destroyed, terribly judged, and for those who reject God's message, the judgment is even worse. And Jesus is saying there is judgment coming for those who hear the message and see the mighty works of Jesus and reject them. And that's what happened evidently in places like Chorazin, Bethsaida, which is near where Jesus fed the 5,000. So maybe Jesus fed the 5,000 and people went, wow, that was amazing. And now let's go back to playing our video games and forget all about it. And Jesus would say, you watched the kingdom of God come into time and you rejected it. And that's going to bring great judgment on you. We must see people who rebel against God with compassion. This is sobering. While the world celebrates rebellion against God in all its forms, we must mourn it and seek to lovingly compel non-Christians to see life through the biblical lens, through a very different lens than the ones they've been taught to see through. So by way of application, this means we are not indifferent about whether people accept or reject the message of Christ. We don't just tell them the truth and walk away and say we've done our job. No, we plead with them. We pray for them. We plead with the Lord of the harvest, who later on in the passage is also the Lord of heaven and earth. And we ask God to work his convicting work by the Spirit in their hearts to generate new life where there is currently only spiritual death. We spend time reading the Bible with non-Christians. We invite them to church so they can hear the truth here as well as in conversations with you. We do this so we can elicit a response because Christ's mission is urgent. Perhaps you heard this past, uh, I believe, Wednesday evening about an urgent situation in the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., Evidently, most of our representatives there and their, their staff were not in the building at the time. But for all who were in the building, the piercing sounds of the siren went off around 6.30 on Wednesday evening, and they had to clear out of the Capitol building and all the surrounding office buildings around the Capitol building. And this was because the Capitol Police had become aware of what they considered to be a probable threat to the safety of everyone in that neighborhood in Washington. And so they cleared everybody out and there were piercing sirens all because an airplane was circling through what was uh, restricted airspace, as it should be around uh, Washington, D.C., a low circling airplane around the Capitol building. What could this mean? And people said, you know, my mind went back to January 6th as I ran down the street in Washington. All because the Washington Nationals baseball team was having the Army drop several parachuters into their stadium for a celebration of military night. And the military knew nothing about it. And so they sounded the alarms and people had to flee the building doing their important job that we have voted for them to do for their own safety. Because the FAA didn't coordinate with the Nationals and whoever else was, in, was all involved in all that. 
But what I'm saying is the urgency that those people felt as they had to leave their laptops open and their food on their desk and their important documents that we pay them to work on on their desk and they got out of the building with urgency because there was a potential, of a potential threat, a probable threat is the word they used. There's not just a probable threat to those who reject the mission of Christ. Christians, there is certain judgment for those who reject Christ. Does that not do anything to make you want to tell people that Jesus is the only King, that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Verses 17 through 24, follow along as I read these verses now. A far shorter passage, we'll move through it uh, somewhat more briefly as well. Verses 17 through 24 in Luke 10. The 72 returned from this mission Jesus has sent them out with. Who knows how much time is involved between verse 16 and verse 17, but some amount of time, enough for them to go and now come back. They returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In verses 17 through 24, Christ's mission is spiritual. You might say, well, duh. (laughs) What I mean specifically by that is that he was sending these disciples out not on a humanitarian mission. Go feed the poor. Good to do. Go fight racism. Good to do. But here's what you have to go do. Tell them the truth. Give them spiritual food, spiritual meat. Defeat the evil one, which Christ accomplishes, and as we'll see, through our ministry. And grant redemption to sinners, which Christ accomplishes through our ministry. So Christ's mission is spiritual. We're engaging in incredible spiritual realities every time we tell the truth to someone. And so verses 17 through 20 tell us to rejoice in the salvation God has given you. These people have gone out, and there is no specific instruction, at least recorded here by Luke, that Jesus gave them about casting out demons, as we've seen the disciples do many times, as we've seen Jesus himself do many times, particularly from chapter 5 through 9 to this point. We've seen lots of demons get cast out in the power of God. And these 72 followers of Jesus are seeing the same patterns and are seeing the same power through their own preaching of the Word, and they're astonished at it. And Jesus says, don't just be astonished at that. Be amazed that your name is written in the book of life. That's what the New Testament calls uh, the record of all those who are saved. 
all those who are justified by grace through faith in Christ. It's called the book of life. And here Jesus alludes to that when he says, your name is written in heaven. And that's what's amazing because that's what's going to last forever. You know, it says they went out healing people. That's good. But every one of those men and women and boys and girls who they healed on their path that day or in those towns and places that day have died. They all died. So that healing was temporal. But those who put their faith in Christ because of what they proclaimed, that's eternal. Those people are with the Lord now. So don't rejoice in the fact that demons are subject to you, Jesus says. Rejoice in the fact that your name is written in heaven. When he says in, in verse... Uh, well, so let me just show you connections between all these verses 17 through, through 19 here. They say, Lord, we saw the demons subject to us. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall. Verse 19 says, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. What's the connection between demons, Satan, serpents, and scorpions? Four terms, all related here. The most simple way I can say this is that the Bible repeatedly uses a variety of terms to talk about the enemy. To talk about Satan and all those who are aligned with him against God. And most of those terms are words like dragon, serpent, snake, scorpion, things that bite, things that sting, things that kill. And we hate them. Vipers. That word often shows up. And what we see here is Jesus saying, through your ministry, you are helping, you are participating. That's the word I want to use. You are participating in the crushing of Satan that was first hinted at, excuse me, in Genesis 3.15, and then is brought up over and over again until Revelation 20. And you say, no, there's no way I'm participating in that. Oh, yes, there is. And let me tell you the verse I'm going to end the service with today. Fast forward about 10 or 15 minutes, and this is the verse you're going to hear me quote to you. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You as Christians are participating in God's mission of crushing evil, personified in Satan here. So, if you want to study that more, I have a book in my office I will gladly lend to you called The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer or The Serpent Crusher or something like that by a guy named Andy Nacelli, who will be one of Josh Wilkes' theology professors this fall. Very jealous. But, great book, very short book. Clayton also has a copy. Israel has a copy. Perhaps you can get a copy at Half Price Books or anywhere else. A little biblical theology, which means it's a, a way of tracing out the story of the Bible through the lens of Jesus being the one who crushes the serpent, the scorpion, the snake, the dragon, Satan. If you want on a children's level, Andy Nacelli and a guy named Champ Thornton wrote a little children's book about this theme called The Serpent Slayer and the Something of Something Scrolls, something like that. Uh, Google it, and you'll find it. It's, and it's very good. My boys and I thoroughly ate it up uh, these last several, well, for several weeks as we read it recently. So what I'm saying is it's an amazing privilege to participate in God's mission of crushing evil. You have this unusual phrase that I don't believe is normative, and I want to make sure you're aware of that. At the end of verse 19, you have authority over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. 
That sounds like a get-out-of-jail-free card if you've ever heard of it. Like, I can go do whatever I want. I'm going to go jump off a building, and Satan can't hurt me. God's going to protect me. Like, no. What I'm saying is, an example of this is in Acts 28, when Paul has just gotten off of a ship, and he's on a beach, and a viper jumps up, a snake again, and bites him on the wrist or on the arm, and Satan, or Satan, Paul shakes it off, which is kind of gross to think about itself, and it falls into a fire and dies. And all the people who are on this new island who have never heard of Paul before, never heard of the gospel before, are standing there like, all right, he's about to fall over dead. And they keep watching him, and they keep watching him, and he's just like, I'm good. How come he was good? How come he didn't die of the poison from that viper that is now crackling in the fire? Because nothing shall hurt you. There were specific people that God gave this privilege to that he was going to give an unusual measure of protection for because their ministry was so urgent and spiritual in nature. And what I would simply say is, if a viper bites your hand, you're probably going to die. And it's not because God loves you less, but just be aware of that. It's a public service announcement. What this passage is telling us is that being justified by God's grace through faith, particularly through verse 20 here, is far more important than anything you accomplish on earth for the sake of God's kingdom. It's good to accomplish things for God's kingdom. It is a delight to preach to you and feel like what I'm doing is engaging in God's battle against evil, battle against false teaching. And I'm doing that every time I open the Word of God with one person or two people or 50 people. And it's a delight to do that. But anything God accomplishes through my ministry or through yours is this big compared to the fact that you've been saved, which is this big. Rejoice that your name is in heaven, Jesus says. Just briefly touching on verses 21 through 24, rejoice in the truth that God has revealed to you. Rejoice in the truth that God has revealed to you. Again, going back to the fact that this is a spiritual work. This is something that God accomplishes by the work of the Holy Spirit. He opens blind eyes. And if you believe the gospel, if you celebrate what the Bible teaches, He has done that for you. He has opened your blind eyes. And this comes from Acts 28 verse 16 that Paul says his mission was to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's Acts 26, 18. Beautiful passage summarizing what the Holy Spirit does when he opens darkened eyes. And we, when we proclaim the truth, recognize and rejoice in the truth that God has revealed to you. Gospel ministry is glorious. It's a glorious privilege to tell people that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and to call people to put all their hope in Him alone. In the summer of 2012, in a very small town, very isolated in Alaska, called Bethel, Alaska, a rumor began to circulate that the town was going to be getting its first Taco Bell. This is a town of like 6,000 people. The only real restaurant they have, a real as in fast food, whether that's real or not, is Subway. And so for them, this was like Christmas. And there were these, these uh, posters that were uh, posted all around town said it was going to open just in time for the July 4th holiday. 
And they just thought, there is no way. This is amazing. God has been gracious to us in Bethel, Alaska. And so they started celebrating this. And these flyers said, if you want to work at this Taco Bell, just call this number. And people would call that number. And the person on the other other end who lived in the town there was like, what are you talking about? And it was either the friend or the foe of the guy who put these posters up. And he was getting call after call from all these people saying, I want to work at the Taco Bell. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so then words slowly trickled out that this was all a hoax. There is no Taco Bell for the people of Bethel, Alaska. If you wanted a crunchy gordita, whatever they sell, you're still going to have to go 400 miles by airplane to get out of your little village to get to Anchorage. And that's your closest cheesy gordita wrap or whatever it's called. Well, as you can imagine, the people in this little town were devastated. I mean, I just need my crunch, you know? It's what I crave. That's the White Castle thing I realized, but this is what I need to survive is my, you know, sort of Mexican food. And when um, Taco Bell headquarters heard about this hoax, obviously their hearts were moved with compassion toward these unfortunate citizens of Bethel. And they decided to literally use a helicopter and a chain to carry a food truck loaded down with tacos all the way to Bethel, Alaska. So they made 10,000 tacos in Bethel, Alaska on July 1st or 2nd, 2012, so that these people could have the experience that they had been longing for all of their lives. And when I read that story recently, one of the questions that crossed my mind, and I don't mean this in a Like, well, of course, you're a pastor, you're going to think that. But one of the questions that crossed my mind was, if they can get tacos to Bethel, Alaska, how's the gospel doing in Bethel, Alaska? Like, is there a healthy church in Bethel, Alaska? And from a quick Google search at 7 o'clock this morning, maybe? It's kind of hard to tell. It seems like the gospel's being preached there. I'm thankful for that. Uh, My sister, nope, that's a long story. If you want to hear that story, there's a door. I'll tell you that story at the door. But, but seriously, it's good for us to be concerned that people get the joys of life that you can have at Taco Bell and you can't have anywhere else. It's good to be concerned about the physical needs of people. No doubt about that. But the question that matters when you die is not, did you eat at Taco Bell? It is, did you repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus? And did you experience the, the gospel of God? And that's the question we must lead with. That's our highest priority as a church, our highest concern is we glorify God through making disciples by telling people the truth. This message, not the message of Taco Bell, the message of the gospel is the most important message in the world. And so the Lord has commissioned us and has appointed us as his followers to take that message near and far and to proclaim that truth with love and conviction and urgency. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, open our eyes to how greatly you have blessed us through the gospel and open our eyes to how desperately needy the world is for the truth. And we pray that you would continue to use this church as a beachhead of gospel advance near and far. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.